you're longing to do, maybe even through someone like us. May that be how we hear your story today. So come, Holy Spirit, we need your help with that. Come, Lord Jesus, and show us this living picture in a way that we can step and walk into it. Come, Father, and would you assure us of your love and your promises to us that always outrun our mistakes, our failure, our pain, our past, our wounds, our everything. It's in your name that we pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen. D.L. Moody lived in the 19th century, last century. He was one of the most influential evangelists in the modern church era. He was one of nine children born to a single mother who struggled to keep food on the table. A shoe salesman to help contribute to the family. He got a job as a shoe salesman uh, with only a fifth grade education. So I only went to fifth grade at school. He came to faith at the age of 17 and shortly thereafter began preaching to overlooked and marginalized teenagers. And he went on to travel the world drawing crowds as large as 30,000 to hear some of his sermons. Many consider him to have been one of the greatest evangelists of the 19th century. And while the fruitfulness of his ministry really speaks for itself, his methodology as an evangelist was neither innovative or impressive. You see, we often think about, we've become familiar with these surges in evangelism where we've seen loads of people coming to faith in Christ and giving their hearts to Him. You know, we've seen the lost being found and the outsider coming in and new children being born into the family of Jesus. And oftentimes we've seen those as the result of some kind of new innovation or new technique or strategy, right? Like, Think, for example, of like the Jesus film or the Alpha course, like we heard earlier, or or a weekend revival or a church-sponsored short-term mission trip. And that's just the tool that kind of spearheads some amazing move of evangelism. And that's usually, you know, the novel kind of method somewhere at the center of the explanation of why it seems evangelism is working, for want of a better word, right? Moody's life and ministry, though, is like a complete uh, exception to this rule. His entire strategy was prayer. That's it. A story that many have told before is that Moody famously carried a list of 100 names in his pocket every day of his adult life. 100 names of his friends and family members. 100 names of people who he was in close, proximate relationship with who had no relationship with Jesus. And Moody's labor of love was this secret, hidden prayer on their behalf. He pleaded with God to reveal himself to each of them in a way they could perceive and receive as God's eternal love. He prayed by name for their salvation. When he died, get this, 96 of the names on that list had become answered prayers had come to faith in Jesus, 96. I don't know about you, but a 96% success rate when it comes to prayer That's pretty good, right? I take those odds any day of the week. Anyone else? You know? Uh, I mean, that's amazing, but it gets better. Because at Moody's funeral, the four people who hadn't given themselves to Christ were there. And in hearing the great testimony and witness of this remarkable man's legacy, they were so moved, independent from one another, that they all gave their hearts to the Lord right then and there. Amazing, right? At his funeral. So just for the record, let's be clear. This shoe salesman, with a fifth grade education, became one of the most influential evangelists in recorded history. How did he do it? Prayer. 
And I know lots of people, myself included, whose success rate in prayer is not that good. I know lots of people, myself included, who have a low stamina in praying for the lost. I mean, we get inspired by these stories like Moody and, and maybe, you know, we, we, we draft our own little list and we put it in our own pockets and we carry it around for a few days or maybe a few weeks. And, and, but eventually the ordinary mundanity and the more urgent demands of life drown it out and that list we thought we might carry to our memorial service is discarded within a few days or weeks. But what Moody's life and what Elijah's story tell us is this. There is, a new, there is a kind of prayer that gives birth to new life. There is a kind of prayer that gives birth to new life. And that is the big idea for today. Now last week we kicked off this series called Praying Church. Where we're looking intentionally at cultivating and growing the culture of prayer among us as the people of God here at the well. Uh, and last week we began with a message called Unceasing Prayer, where we unpacked and, and kind of redug the well of the early church's regular rhythm of prayer. And we kind of unpacked that and discovered it. Uh, unfortunately, because we were in a different venue last week and there were some tif- technical uh, mishaps, we didn't get that sermon recording, so I can't even say go back and listen to it. Uh, sorry about that. Uh, but here's the, here's the snapshot of it. The, the, the variation that we've adopted, we kind of took the early church's version of prayer, brought it up to, into our life, and we've adopted here at the well our own kind of slight tweak on the, the daily rhythm of prayer that the early church lived into. It's this, in the morning, pray the Lord's Prayer. At midday, pray for the lost. In the evening, pray gratitude. Every day, morning, Lord's Prayer. Midday, pray for the lost. Evening, pray gratitude. This is the way the early church prayed. This is how we started praying. And, and uh, I'm, I'm thrilled to hear stories of how it's already started to be lived into this week. Um, you know, our st- and, and, and Alicia and our staff team uh, have created a booklet or bookmark and card that you're welcome to grab from the foyer on, as you leave today to help facilitate that and, and, and encourage you in that rhythm and, and, dis- and adopting that rhythm. But even our staff team over the last week have, while they've been together in the middle of the day, stopped and prayed, you know, for the lost, in the, done the middle, uh, the midday prayer rhythm together. Uh, so we're kind of, I'm, I'm encouraged to see, even in the last week, starting to live into this new rhythm. And uh, so over these, these three weeks, uh, the next three weeks of this series, and there's a couple more to come, we'll be unpacking each of these rhythms. So next week, we'll be unpacking the evening rhythm of praying gratitude. The week after that, on the 8th of October, Hannah Frownstein will be bringing the message, teaching through the Lord's Prayer and how we pray that in the morning. But this morning, here, today, we're talking about midday prayer and praying for the lost. And uh, I just want to credit Tyler Staten and his book, Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools. Phenomenal book on prayer. If you've not read it, I commend it to you. It's uh, really shaped a lot of the, the, the thoughts and the, the thinking around this, this morning's teaching in particular, but really the series as a whole. So um, if we're going to get anywhere today, though, we need to begin first with defining a few terms. So I know it's horrifically out of style, to speak of anyone as lost, right? So for some people, that's got this ring of superiority to it and maybe some type of savior complex, but I think actually it's language that's worth redeeming. And the reason for that is because there's words that are common in the church today, like evangelism, that may send a chill down the spine of some believers. And that's because we live in a culture that's very suspicious of salesmanship and very thirsty for authenticity, right? Right? 
And so we hear a word like that and it rings of these sales tactics. And, and so if a word like evangelism is a difficult speed bump for you, then throw it out and pick a different word. That's okay. You know, it's a word that doesn't actually appear in the pages of Scripture in the form that it is. It's drawn from the word for good news or gospel in the Greek, but it's not in this form shows up anywhere in the Scriptures. So just pick a different word and keep going. Move on. Lost, though, is in a different category. Lost is not church language. Lost is Jesus' language. And therefore, I think it's worth redeeming. And personally, I've come to actually find Jesus' use of the term lost as his preferred term really helpful for those who are out of relationship with him. Lost, meaning searching for home, for safety, for rest, but not sure where to go. Lost is that frantic feeling that runs around inside of your gut when you thought you knew where you were going and then suddenly you realize you don't know where you're going and you don't know the way back to where you started from so you can start again and and you don't know the way forward to comfort and safety and rest. Lost is actually a word of compassion, not a word of categorization or condemnation or superiority. And that's how Jesus described life outside of relationship with himself. Lost, not at fault, just looking for home and not sure which direction will lead there. So I also know how terribly unfashionable it is to speak of salvation through the metaphor of new birth or new life. Probably there's a guy downtown preaching on the street corner with some fiery sign that's put that, uh, you know, made that all a really bad look for us, right? But again, this is Jesus' language taken right off his lips. You can read it in John chapter 3. And it's a central biblical metaphor for what it means to begin the life and life to the full that Jesus promised us. And in Elijah's story, it's imagery for the kind of prayer that invites the good shepherd to go seeking and saving those who are lost that they might taste this good life. So friends, there is a kind of prayer that gives birth to new life. That's where we're headed. But in order to get there, we're going to go back and revisit the story of Elijah. And if you've been around here for a while, you know we did a series on the life of Elijah just a few weeks ago. So we're going to, you know, we're going to return to that. And I want to give you this story uh, this morning in three scenes. Three scenes. Scene number one, the church on fire. Now, if you remember back to our series, the context in which Elijah's ministry is playing out is, is one in which Israel has forgotten God, as they tended to do quite often. The Old Testament pattern uh, is that of an Israel that looks to Yahweh out of desperation. God then hears and responds, and then when that desperation is replaced with God's response of safety and comfort, they, they then, Israel, tend to put their trust in something more tangible, more predictable, something that requires less faith. And in Elijah's time, that trust becomes vested in a king named Ahab and his wife Jezebel, who lead Israel away from Yahweh and into idol worship of a false god called Baal. Now, in a moment of extraordinary courage, Elijah stands up and he says, no, not on my watch. So he goes to the king and he issues this challenge. He says, look, I'm one prophet of Yahweh. And there are 450 prophets of Baal. Let's set up a sacrifice with two altars. One to Yahweh, one to Baal. Put a bull on the altar so that they're all ready for worship. I mean, this was a common expression of worship to all sorts of gods within the ancient Near Eastern world. But don't set the the, the sacrifice on fire. You know, don't light it up. Instead, pray. And we'll see whose God miraculously sends fire from heaven to light the sacrifice. The God who sends the fire from heaven is the one true God. At the same time, 
So historically, this you know might seem a little bit random and bizarre to us, but at, historically, it's actually not as, as random and bizarre. See, in ancient uh, Mesopotamia, Baal was considered the god of the skies and, and often was portrayed as a bull or with a lightning bolt in his hand. So calling down fire from heaven should have been in the bag for him, right? I mean, it should have been like, we got this, you know? And since he's betrayed as a bull, Elijah's telling the people to let their god of the skies who has the power to send lightning from heaven, defend his own image that's lying here on the altar. And at the same time, he's setting up another altar and saying, I'm going to give Yahweh the opportunity to show that he is still the God of the Exodus who delivers and leads his people to safety, rest, and promise. Now you have to admit, this does sound intriguing, right? Regardless of which side of the situation you're sitting on, because purely because people just don't seem to put themselves out there like this, right? I mean, this is pretty bold, pretty courageous to just put it out there like that. So Ahab says, sure, let's go for it. Let's get after it. The sacrifices are set up. The word spreads. A massive crowd gathers around. The 450 prophets of Baal, they go first. They pray and nothing happens. They grow more intense, so they're shouting and dancing and chanting and nothing happens. Eventually, they begin to cut themselves, mutilating their bodies to get their God's attention. Nothing happens. It goes on for hours, through most of the afternoon, and nothing happens. These prophets exhaust themselves, and then it's Elijah's turn. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me, he says. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. So Elijah walks over to an old altar of Yahweh, the one that had been torn down in the name of Baal, and instead he begins to repair it as it used to be. Friends, that's significant. Then he says, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. See, on the, on the surface, this seems pretty impressive because we all know that wet wood is much more difficult to burn, right? If you're planning on praying that something would be set on fire, soaking it in, in, first in water is a pretty bold move, right? Uh, But that's not the point of what he's doing, because Elijah's not like Houdini trying to set up some magic trick. He's a worshiper preparing to pray. Here's the point. Israel is in the midst of a three-year drought. Not a drop of rain has fallen in more than a thousand days. That would be an issue today if that were to happen in our situation, right? You know, that would, we'd, we'd see agriculture limited, we'd see wildfires breaking out more, it would alter our ecosystem, right? But in an agrarian society without a sophisticated trade system between nations, this is economically devastating, People are literally starving to death and even a change in policy by the political leaders of the day couldn't fix it. That wouldn't change things. And so in the midst of a drought, think about it. What is the most prized possession? I heard someone say, water, you're onto it. You're going someplace. That's good, right? They need water. In the meantime, Conventional wisdom tells us that conserving as much water as possible is the way to go. So limit bathing, drink only what you have to, save it for the crops. I mean, water is the most prized and limited resource and prized possession in a drought. I remember growing up in Queensland where we would regularly have these drought seasons where the council gave out um, little egg timers that you'd put in the shower so you'd only have a three or four minute shower. I forget what it was. And when the egg timer you know, ran out, people would literally store 
uh, because you couldn't wash a car, you couldn't water your gardens or anything like that. So people would have buckets in the shower to catch any runoff in order to water your gardens. I mean, I, I remember what this was like. You preserve this precious resource of water. And it means that water then is the most costly offering that Elijah could bring. So he places not only his own reputation before God in this crowd, uh, this crowd, but actually his own livelihood and security and their livelihood and security, right? This, this profound act of worship and faith occurs before a word of prayer is even uttered. And this prophet invites them, hey, you go get the cistern. You go pour the water over the altar, this most precious national commodity. You know, this is, this is not just his own precious resource. This is their collective precious resource. And he invites those, who, those servants. He's like, come and participate. They're not just spectating anymore. They're coming and they're participating in this act of worship. It's like the words of King David echo over the entire scene where he says, I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. And then Elijah says, now do it again and do it again. And for good measure, soak it one more time. He's offering God the most lavish sacrifice he can possibly bring. Friends, that's significant. Finally, Elijah prays, answer me, Lord. Answer me so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Friends, imagine that. Just bring to mind right now in your own life that family member, that friend, that co-worker who you perceive to be the farthest away from God. The one that maybe you don't even bother to pray for anymore. The one you don't even consider inviting. The one before whom you've maybe actively avoided talking about faith altogether. Imagine that person sitting next to you on an otherwise normal, sleepy Sunday morning, only this day, as you start singing together in worship, they fall to the ground and begin screaming out loud, the Lord, He is God, the Lord, He is God, right? I mean, can you imagine witnessing something like that? A visible manifestation of God's presence followed by people who had been hostile to God falling face down in worship before Him. Can you imagine it? I mean, imagine if that happened in church here this morning. I'm sure maybe you'd leave here feeling somewhat pleasantly surprised with your worship experience. Right? I mean, it seems fair to say that the church has just caught fire. But that's not the end. It's just the beginning. And what I'm about to say might surprise some of you. Because the truth is, God doesn't dream of the church on fire. And this isn't the climactic moment of Elijah's story. It'll make sense if you know the end. So let's skip ahead from scene one. We'll go all the way to scene three and we'll skip and we'll come back to the middle later. Scene three, the city reborn. Basically, Elijah confidently goes before the king and he says, go and celebrate. Slaughter the fattened calf. Fire up the barbecue. Uncork that bottle you've been saving because God is about to give you a reason to celebrate. And, and the God you just saw light the drenched altar with holy fire. He's now going to provide sustenance for the whole city. Verse 42, he says, so Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, bent down to the ground and put his face between his knees. Go and look toward the sea, he told his servant. And he went up and looked. There is nothing there, he said. Seven times Elijah said, go back. 
The seventh time the servant reported, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds, the wind rose, a heavy rain started falling and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. Three years in a drought. A massive downpour deluges the city and a celebration breaks out in the streets. New life springs up in this depressed place. I mean, this is the climactic moment in Elijah's story. God doesn't dream of a church on fire. I think God dreams of a city reborn. God's dream isn't that our church will be packed with our worship gatherings will be filled and they'll be passionate and you know amazing that we'll have weekday programs for children and teenagers and and, and whatnot that are all above average and, and and we'll you know like that's not that's not God's dream for the well I think all of that's fine it's just not what God dreams about God dreams about pouring out his spirit on the whole city see God is a jealous God is what the scriptures tell us he's jealous for relationship He jealously longs for every last soul because he created each one individually and uniquely. He jealously longs for each ounce of his creation. As Abraham Kuyper uh, puts it, he says, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, Christ does not cry, mine. God dreams of a city reborn. And Elijah's story tells us clearly that dream starts with a church on fire. That's just the beginning of the journey, though. It's not the destination. The city reborn. That's the destination. The journey between the starting place and the destination is long and it's winding and and not without a significant detour. That's why the beginning and the ending aren't enough. We must go back to the middle and talk about scene two and take it seriously and practically. Scene two is the mountain of prayer the mountain of prayer verse 42 says Ahab went off to eat and drink but Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel bent down to the ground and put his face between his knees he hikes up to the top of the mountain takes in the view overlooking this desperate city that God loves and he prays like this it says he Elijah bent down to the ground put his face between his knees now That's an odd posture for prayer. The scriptures talk about lots of different physical postures for prayer. You know, they talk about laying prostrate on your face, face down, like fully uh, spread out before the Lord in prayer. They talk about standing with your hands raised in, in prayer. It talks about kneeling in humility with prayer, but kneeling with your head between your knees? This is something we don't see other places. And I, I, here's a little tip for when it comes to reading the scriptures. Whenever you see a detail that seems a little bit odd or uh, gratuitous or strange, lean in and pay some close attention to it. Because I'm, I'm more, my experience is, I'm more and more convinced is there's very few unimportant details in the Bible. <laughs> Actually, taken, you know, like the Bible is, is, is different than most other things that we read in the sense that it's written in a way that seems like the author is just trying to keep up. They're, they're frantically writing, trying to keep up with everything that happens. You know, it's not like most writing that we have today where a novelist would revise and revise and revise and edit and edit and edit, you know what I mean, to get the perfect thing down. No, this is like kind of frantically, like for example, in First Kings we're told, then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice. Well, that's enough for us to get a picture, but I don't know about you. I'm like, there's a lot more I'd like to have included in that statement. You know what I mean? Like, there's a lot more I'd like to know about how that played out. 
But you can imagine how like a novelist might write that. You know, they might be like, and then the fire fell and, and the flames licked their way across the splintered oak like someone had just put on the cha-cha slide at a Pakya wedding reception. Hey, Something like that? So why this detailed description of Elijah's abnormal prayer posture? Because it tells us something important. To pray for the city, biblical scholars suggest Elijah metaphorically gets into the position of a woman in labor beginning to push. I know, it's graphic. Even the New Testament writer James, referring to this event, he called it fervent or effectual prayer. More recently, this laborious method of praying is commonly referred to in black churches as travailing prayer. Have you heard this? Or, or in other traditions as contending prayer. Whatever you call it, here's the point. There is a kind of prayer that gives birth to new life. You see it? This is a biblical theme that we don't have time to fully develop. It's just the kind of prayer that gives birth to new life. And this is the sort of prayer God loves to answer. He loves to answer prayers for new life, prayers for salvation. God doesn't only dream of a church on fire. He dreams of an outpouring, a city reborn. A mountain of prayer, it seems, is the only way to get from one to the other. But if you ascend the mountain of prayer, proceed with caution. Because here's the bit you likely already know by experience is that prayer for the lost is both slow and unglamorous. Prayer for the lost is slow. See, Elijah, he prayed for fire once, but he prayed for rain seven times. The sort of prayer that gives birth to a new life is slow. Maybe you've experienced this. You had that friend who seemed, you know, maybe since they were starting to pursue God and then you had a spiritual conversation where they seemed open to belief and so you excitedly, you started to pray and you prayed more and nothing happened. And so you prayed some more and nothing happened. And you prayed some more and nothing happened. And then seven weeks or seven months or maybe seven years of fervent prayer for that one person. And then finally, there was something some glimmer of hope that maybe God was at work mysteriously drawing their heart to him and weaving the circumstances of their life to expose his unquenchable love for them as you prayed and prayed and prayed and kept on praying, kept on praying. It reminds me of when our daughter Evie was born, our eldest Evie. We had longed and prayed for a child. A long time. And then there's the long labor, the long, the long uh, pregnancy period, you know, where you're waiting it out and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then, and then that day comes when the contractions start and you call the doctor and they confirm, yeah, it sounds like you're, you're going into labor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just walk some more, drink lots of water, get some rest, walk some more, you know, th- all this kind of stuff, right? And for Jamie, this labor and delivery was long and drawn out. I'm talking 36 hours long of labor and delivery, right? The pain and the agony that she went through, I remember looking at her and going, man, there's no way she's ever going to want to do this again, right? (laughs) And then we met Evie. And even after the 36-hour birth, it was worth it, right? The worst moments from labor had brought this joy of the new life into our world, right? Whatever she went through, Like this girl, this little lady who is now part of our life, who so far had only caused her incredible pain and agony, had greatly inconvenienced our sleep patterns and promised to be entirely dependent on us for a number of years, was so worth it, right? 
Jesus actually talks to this in John chapter 16. He says, when, when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. New life requires labor. It requires laboring in prayer, but the joy of salvation always far outweighs the preceding pain, struggle, and persistence. Plenty of people have been inspired by D.L. Moody's list of 100 people. Far fewer people continued to pray after the inspiration wore off. If you want that kind of legacy, you've got to live that kind of life. Birthing prayer is slow. And prayer for the lost is unglamorous. Think about it. Calling down fire from heaven would have won Elijah all kinds of public admiration, right? There must have been stir in the crowd. They would have been talking about his name up and down the street all day long, you know what I mean? Praying for a downpour in the city, though, was secret labor. It was unseen. It was unglamorous. He sent Ahab away and he went up the mountain, right? It wasn't the public spectacle of fire. that we're, um, It's the secret labor of prayer that we're told to imitate. And there's one moment, actually, where Jesus' disciples in the New Testament seem interested in recreating Elijah's fire spectacle. It's, it's in Luke chapter 9. It says, when the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? And then Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. That's like a firm and strong, straightforward, nope, this way, you know, like, I mean, that's great, right? I mean, I love it. And, and, and see, here's the truth is that it's in the secret, unglamorous part of Elijah's life that we are biblically instructed to imitate. James 5 says, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was human, just as we are. He prayed earnestly, that's that word, earnestly, fervently, contendingly, travailingly, that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed and the heavens gave rain and the earth produced its crops. See friends, we have an appetite for spectacle, but God has an appetite for new life. We can't resist public spectacle. We love it, but God can't resist the secret labor of prayer. Plenty of those in church today would say, man, I want to be there when the fire falls. I want to see revival break out. Bring on the signs and wonders. Let's have it, you know. But far fewer are ready to labor in secret prayer in that hidden place because it's not glamorous. But James tells us it is powerful. It is effective. And God wants the church on fire because God dreams of the city reborn. God is delighted by a growing passion for worship within a church community. Elijah repaired the altar before calling for fire. God is glorified by instances of costly sacrifice, pouring out those cisterns of water over the altar during a drought. And in those instances when the church gathers in worship to pray and the fire falls, Jesus, we can imagine, is there dancing with this huge supernatural smile stretched across his face. God ignites the church because he's jealous and longing for the city. And Elijah's story and James's call to participation in prayer are invitations for us to be found by God on the mountain of prayer, to join the Holy Spirit in groaning for new life. It requires us to be persistent and single-minded and to develop an acquired taste for the unglamorous. To accept this invitation requires us to display a st- like this, this stubborn willingness to pray through the waiting. 
a supernatural labor of willful agony, or as in the words of the saints, to carry the prayer burden for the promise of new life. See, every great move of God in church history, every revival and awakening seems to follow a common pattern, the pattern of renewal. The church catches fire leading to an increased priority of prayer, resulting in an outpouring of the Spirit on a city. You don't get to jump straight from scene one all the way to scene three. We've got to walk through scene two, and we must do it together, friends. What stands between a church that is alive and a downpour on the city? It's the mountain of prayer. So, is there a practice to get that into my life? If you're a traveling executive or as a shift worker or a stay-at-home parent or a student or someone who works multiple jobs with no predictable pattern to your week, the answer is yes. We've developed it. We've called it the Well Church Daily Prayer Rhythm. It's that simple. And bedded into this is this midday pattern of prayer of praying for the lost. Do you mind putting that up, Anna? And not the, not the lost in some abstract sense, but the lost in terms of those specific people, those faces and names who you know, who you're in close and proximate relationship with, the, your friends or your coworkers or your family members, that in the middle of each day, you would pause and pray for them every day for 30 seconds, it could be for five minutes, it could be for 30 minutes, it could be for an hour, it doesn't matter. It's not about the duration, it's about the rhythm. See, here's the thing. This is about cultivating a sustainable rhythm where the blur of our everyday is interrupted and interrupted and interrupted by communion with Jesus until the communion with Jesus begins to order the blur of our day. So it's not about duration. It's about rhythm. And we've offered these tools, you know, the, the prayer guides, we've got the booklets and the cards out in the foyer. I encourage you to grab one of those as you go. There's the 24-7 uh, Prayer. International have developed a prayer app. You know, they're the ones who did like Lectio 365 that we've talked about a few different times. I love it. It's great. But they've also developed one called Inner Room, which follows this daily pattern throughout the day, each morning, midday, and evening. And our, like I said, our staff team have taken the chance to stop in the middle of the day, pray for the lost. But why stop in the middle of the day? Why midday? Well, Jesus, in the story that gives our church its name, in John chapter 4, story of Jesus and the woman at the well, tells us that tired from his journey, Jesus stopped and sat down at a well outside a Samaritan village. Tells us in John chapter 4 verse 6 that it was about noon. See, in the morning, our good intentions and our positive willpower are at their absolute height, right? But by midday, we're kind of zoning out at our desk and we're mindlessly scrolling devices and we're beginning to set our sights on the evening's rest, right? We're beginning to scheme and plan about the friends that we'll meet up with for a happy hour or what we'll eat for dinner or what show we're going to just watch as we're vegging on the couch that night, you know? The midpoint of each day is when the human propensity to escape is at its highest. We will escape the present moment for almost any distraction, the human tendency in those moments is to turn inwards toward the self, to focus on myself. And that tendency is at its highest in the midday. All the way back in the fourth century, one of the most famous of the Desert Fathers, a guy by the name of Evagrius, he had a term for this. He called it, this tendency in the middle of the day, he called it the noonday demon. The noonday demon. So here, 
sits Jesus Christ, the Alpha and Omega, the, the God of the universe who is fully human. And feeling the pull to zone out, to be distracted, to plan some preferred future that's better than the present moment. And how did Jesus combat that pull? It says he struck up a conversation with the Samaritan woman who came to the well. You see, when the flesh, our sinful selves, pushes inward towards the self, the spirit of the living God inside of us pushes outwards in compassion. And at the midpoint of each day, we have the opportunity to train ourselves to either turn inward toward the flesh or counterintuitively to push outwards in compassion. Maybe you consider this moment of at the well with you know, Jesus and the Samaritan woman as just the overflow of the natural compassion of Jesus and and it really could be that. There's no way of knowing for sure. But some biblical scholars have actually imagined that Jesus was taking this compassionate action in spite of his feeling so exhausted, he's worn down, his low emotional bandwidth, and that this is less some unconscious overflowing of compassion from Jesus and more a conscious and counterintuitive choice that he's making. There's no way of knowing for sure. But the picture the Apostle John paints does seem to suggest that this is a possible interpretation. And what's the result? The result is new life, right? New life in this unlikely candidate who is the Samaritan woman and then new life in the entire village that she calls home. A city is reborn. You see it? And Jesus' disciples then come back with his takeout order for lunch, the one that he was too tired to go walk with them into town to collect himself. And he says something confusing. He says, hey, you know, I'm not hungry anymore. No, he actually says, "Uh, I have food to eat you know nothing about. My food, Jesus says, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. So Jesus is renewed at a soul level by this counterintuitive compassion chosen at noonday. Prayer for the lost at midday does two things. It offers the bread of life to those who are hungry but don't even know it. And it satisfies my soul, our soul, on that bread of life that I'm most hungry for, that's often masked underneath the temptation to distract and to disconnect. So what stands in the way of a church on fire and a downpour of living water on a city? It's a mountain of prayer. And the way to engage that is as simple as an intentional interruption to the midpoint of your day to labor in prayer alongside the groaning of the Holy Spirit for the lost. And I want to end with a picture. It's a picture from the book of Ezra in the Old Testament. See, after 70 years of slavery in a foreign land, Israel is finally, finally released to go home to Jerusalem. But the city's been ransacked. It's nothing but rubble and ruins, right? Uh, and, and, uh, and they need to rebuild. And so just like Elijah, they begin with the temple the altar, the place of worship. So they begin with the foundations and before they get any of the walls up, before they you know, put pews in or set up the inner room, there's nothing but the bare floor and foundation. The entire nation gathers around these foundations in order to worship, to commemorate this new foundation that they've set. And what comes out of them is the worship they've been waiting 70 years for. A lifetime or two lifetimes for some to worship this God in this way back in this place. And Ezra describes it, this worship like this in Ezra chapter 3. He says, 
And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. Shouts of joy, right? That, that's obvious to us. We understand why that's there. But why the weeping? Why the weeping? Why is the older generation weeping? Biblical scholars offer a number of different suggestions on this, but they seem to mostly agree on this one. They're weeping over those who are missing. They're weeping over those who didn't live long enough to see this day or those who didn't want it bad enough to make the trip back from Babylon. They're weeping over those who should be here but are not. They're weeping because this moment of worship, of, is, is, it's incomplete because his voice and her voice aren't joining with mine here in, as we worship God. Friends, we gather in worship every Sunday here at the well and we lift grateful thanks and praise to God hopefully with great joy right but do we weep do we weep over those who are missing do we weep over that co-worker who you've never even thought to invite do we weep over the family member who would have been interested by now if they were ever going to be interested do we weep over the neighbor who's nothing more than acquaintance to us and uh, but but we've never considered that actually the Spirit might be as active there as in a moment of response here at the front of the stage. Do we weep over the voice who is missing when we gather in worship? Friends, I've got to be honest. I look around our church and I hear the sound of heavy rain starting to come. I see like that, that small cloud starting to come up. I see, I look around and, and the, the, the journey that many of you are on in following Jesus is amazing. And I want to encourage you and say, go for it. Go hard. You're making costly sacrifices. You're making intentional decisions to interrupt the normal flow of your life in order to prioritize the following of Jesus with your life. And I say, yes and amen. Cheering you on 100% for it. It's amazing. But I wonder, friends, if in the midst of this, we might have overlooked something that we're not supposed to go alone, that God's placed us in a region for a reason. Here in Ototahi, Greater Christchurch re- region, the, the latest stats are showing that our greater region, if you, if you include the Lincolns and the, and the, and the you know, Rollistons and the West Mountains and the Darfields and the Wimacs and the, you know, the surrounding area, they're saying somewhere between 650, 680,000 people now live here. Of which seven or eight percent have some kind of live and active faith in Jesus Christ and connection to a local church. That leaves over 600,000 people in our backyard, in our patch, who don't yet know Jesus. And I wonder if the invitation to us this morning, friends, is to pick up the prayer burden, to pray for those 600,000. You don't have to carry 600,000 names in your pocket, but boy, you know some your family members, your friends who maybe this morning God is saying, that's it for you. Pick them up, carry them in prayer. 
And may we live into this moment where we begin to see this chorus rising up amongst us, this, this chorus of joy and weeping that's mixing together in a song of praise that's loud and indistinguishable, and that we might begin to see this outpouring of living water over our city and our region to the glory and fame of Jesus Christ our Lord. May that be so. You know, we celebrate a baptism at 9 a.m. service and that was cool with Dan. But we also celebrated baptism two weeks ago and you guys don't know this, so I wanted to share this story. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a guy who's not part of our church, but he's a friend, uh, someone in our church has like a family friend who kind of knows this person. He was in his 60s and he had a terminal illness. He was on his deathbed, came to faith in Jesus on his deathbed in hospice. And uh, his dying wish was to be baptized. Well, he was physically unable to leave hospice and unable to come to a church and, and whatnot. So Pastor David went along two weeks ago, two weeks ago, went along and baptized this guy on a Saturday afternoon in his hospice bed. Baptized him in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit pouring water over his head. Family had gathered around uh, to celebrate with him. Uh, amazing moment, right? Uh, and that was on a Saturday afternoon. He passed away on the following Tuesday. Here's the most remarkable thing of that story, I think while we celebrate and rejoice in this man coming to know Jesus and being baptized, an amazing gift. His mother was there in the room. 90-year-old godly woman who'd been praying for her son to come to know Jesus for 60 years. God works, amen? And she got to then experience his first communion with her right there in that room just a couple weeks ago. Thanks be to God. And I wonder, friends, it's like it took him till the end of his life, but he lived in the wake of his mother's prayers all those 60 years. And I just wonder, friends, who, whose who's prayer wake are you living in? And who might live in the wake of your prayers? So let's pray. Lord, I do thank you that you are always working and moving and speaking. And Lord, even now I pray you be putting those in, in our minds and in our hearts, just emblazon them on our souls, those who you are asking us to carry in prayer. Those who you are jealous for, you are longing to see come to know you. And Lord, would you develop in us a sustainable rhythm that interrupts our days every day for communion in and with you.